and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. I was on holiday last week and noticed a teenager wearing a Nirvana t-shirt, and I realised with a slight shock that this Generation Zeder was advertising a band that epitomised an early 90s sense of ennui and cynicism. Maybe she and I had more in common than I'd assumed. But being a Gen Xer, I thought it better not to mention it and risk incredulity and a raised eyebrow. With me to talk about our preoccupation with generations is fellow Gen Xer Bobby Duffy, Professor of Public Policy at King's College London and author of a new book, Generations, Does When You're Born Shape Who You Are? Welcome back to the bunker, Bobby. Great to be here, Rod. So we hear a lot about boomers and a lot about millennials and Generation Z, but not that much about Generation X. Why does Generation X get overlooked, do you think? Why do we? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, baby boomers are obviously huge, economically powerful, and it was it sort of caught the imagination post-war when it was a real demographic event. And I think millennials uh, were unlucky in so many ways. There was a, there's a whole, whole series of economic and other reasons for bad luck, but they also came of age as the social media explosion happened, and there was a lot of focus on that kind of uh, technology and that those communications opportunities that that brought. So they they did get an awful lot of memes and social media type focus on where the extremes, where that type of communication really does suit stereotypes and the extremes. So millennials really took off. And we thought we were the cool generation in many, we got the cool name in many ways from Douglas Copeland's book. We all was going quite well for a while, but then we're quite a small generation in the middle of those two big trend so we do tend to get uh, forgotten i mean i mean the other thing is we are middle-aged now uh, mostly lots of us and it is a sort of relatively boring pressured middle time which is not not as interesting in in some ways and you don't get a lot of focus on that so yeah i think i think we're just dwarfed we're squeezed and dwarfed by generations that have got much more focus for very different reasons yeah that does sound familiar <laughs> but you say we're engaged in a phony generational war why is it phony and what's feeding it? Yeah, it's really interesting. It is, wherever you look, so much is set up as a generational battle or a, or a battle between old and young, whether that's on climate change, economic changes or uh, cultural change. And it's a, such a repeated trope that we kind of uh, take it for granted. But when you look at the data, the attitudinal data and how people feel about different generations there's no real sense of huge conflict or any impending generational war and it's understandable because while which cohort we're in is important to us our real connections reach up and down generations through our family those strengths of connections are much more important to us in in many different ways so we do tend to look up and down rather than across and it's partly that love aspect of it. it's partly we don't want to mug grandma as uh, another book uh, talks about generational differences, talks about it is because of that, those reasons, but also because if we do that, it was going to cost us more. But then also it's how we treat older people today is one of the best or few reflections we've got of how we're going to be treated ourselves. So age is a really unusual characteristic to try to divide people on, given the nature of the strength of those connections and the fact that you more or less uniquely out of demographic types we are going to pass through the different age ranges if we're lucky and we don't die before that so we've got a vested interest in that in keeping those connections going between the different age groups 
You argue that age cohort is just one factor in how people behave and how they see the world. What are the others? There's a device uh, or a way of analysis in social science that we use a lot called age, period and cohort effects. And I find it incredibly useful in general life and in understanding any types of change in societies at an aggregate level, because basically all types of change, all change that we see is a mix of those factors. We change as we age, uh, as we go through different stages of our life cycle, and that affects our concerns or behaviours, attitudes and opinions. Uh, When we go through big uh, life-changing events like leaving home, getting a job, getting married, having kids. So those life cycle effects are very powerful and it pulls people along a particular path, a well-worn path that we've been through for a long time. And then you also get period effects where something happens like a big shock, like a pandemic or a war or a, a, a recession. And that affects everyone in different degrees. It's true but it has some sort of reach across everyone. Then the final group is these cohort effects, which is where a generation is different and stays different because it was socialized in a different time or in different circumstances. And basically a lot of the myths and stereotypes and cliches that come up around generations are directly due to mixing up these effects where in particular, quite often a feature of age of being young is presented as a characteristic of that generation. And that's, uh, you know, a lot of the cliches around millennials or Gen Z are just a feature of being young and they will grow out of it. So in the book you talk about, there's a, a big cliche about millennials or Gen Z being more materialistic than previous generations. But that's the same repeated pattern over time where the young people are more interested in being rich and material gains and then they tend to grow out of it as they get older. It's presented as a cohort characteristic, a me, me, me generation. And it's just not true. Uh, And that's repeated. That keeps getting repeated over time. So having in mind, when you're looking at change, is this an age effect just because people are young or old? Or is this a period effect where it's uh, something that has happened and it's uh, affecting everyone? Or is it a true cohort effect? And the job of the book really is to separate out those different types of effects and in particular try to get to those cohort effects what's really different about the generations coming through now compared to older generations because that's a way to understand the future. One of the things you point out is that there have been some quite seismic changes in public opinion that are not attributable to any particular generation that have been gradual and have crossed generations. Can you tell us about some of those? Yes, no, that goes to some of this point about cultural war or culture change in this sense that we've got a particularly different generation of young people, social culture, social justice warriors, or however they're going to be termed coming through right now. But when you actually look at the long-term trends on cultural issues, whether that's attitudes to race or gender equality or sexuality or gender identity, all those types of things, you can see the same kind of pattern where the younger generations are always more ahead on those types of issues, more comfortable with change. Um, that goes for you know the baby boomer generation compared to the pre-war generation, and then Generation X compared to the baby boomers, and then millennials compared to Generation X. And you get this kind of cascade across the generations where it's a sort of it's a gradual cultural change. I mean, some of them they're very dramatic, some of them, but it's not just down to a new cohort. So I mean it's incredible to think, for example, 
in the 1980s, you still had nearly half of people thinking that a woman's place was in the home while the man should go out to work. And now that's only 8%. But that's been just about all the generations have shifted, including babies. It's only really the pre-war generation haven't moved as much on that, but even they've moved a fair bit. So you've got this constant renewal of cultural views and comfort with change. And that's because younger people are more malleable. They're not programmed to how things are have been done in the past. And it just keeps society fresh. It's um, a lot of the great thinkers on generations talk about how we'd be a stagnant pond if we didn't have this renewal because people get set in their ways once they get past a, a certain sort of age. So really healthy for society in many ways, but currently being portrayed as a big cultural division between a certain cohort of young people and uh, the rest of the population or, or older people in particular. And that's not really the reality in the sense that that's what always happens. It's not unusual. And we're presenting it as a as a very different thing right now. And, and going back to that device about separating age period and cohort effects, this is much more a period effect of things feel more fractious now, more divided, because we have a more fractious politics, a more divided media that exaggerates extremes rather than what brings us together so it's uh, there's nothing particularly unusual about the gap between young and old on emergent social issues right now compared to the gap between young and old in the past yeah i wonder as well if it's uh, an aspect of people almost resisting aging and saying you know my changing my views are not down to my age they are generational that did occur to me but you had some um Really interesting findings about alcohol and sex in particular and how attitudes towards those have changed. Yeah, but one of the most generational things in the book, which I was a bit surprised about, was regular alcohol drinking. And when I say generational, what I mean is that there's a cohort-based behaviour. So I plot people's generation as lines where I can trace them over time, uh, the pre-war generation, then uh, baby boomer generation, Gen X, millennials and Gen Z mainly. And when you see flat lines going across your chart, that means that that generation is sticking with that behavior over time. And what you see is incredibly flat lines on regular drinking of alcohol five nights or more a week, where the pre-war generation, you get three in 10 of those, uh, that generation saying they drink alcohol five or more nights a week. And it goes down very steeply. Uh, again, very flat lines. You get socialized and clearly get socialized into a level of regular drinking that sticks with you. So it's about 20 odd percent of baby boomers and down again to 15 or 10 of Gen X. And then it's virtually non-existent among Gen Z right now as a behavior, that regular level of drinking. But when you see those sorts of patterns, that does point to a very different future relationship with alcohol. I'm not saying that level of regular drinking is either good or bad, or uh, depends on, on how people are doing, but it just shows a very different relationship with alcohol, where it's not as embedded in the cultural norms of those um, generations. And that's a big shift. And it's happened over quite a short period of time due to all sorts of interventions about alcohol, stricter licensing and selling uh, rules, higher prices, all of those types of things have had an effect on this quite core behavior, or at least core to quite a lot of people. And it's very surprising as Gen X are in the middle, looking at both ends of that, thinking that there's such a high proportion in pre-wars and not being able to imagine doing that myself. But then 
also looking at the other end and thinking, it's weird that there'd be none of my cohort doing that as well. And then sexual behavior is, yeah, that's, that really stands out as a generational pattern, but has much more depth to it than just it blaming it on one cohort. There's a lot of discussion drawn from the US about a sex recession. And it's often couched as young people who are the latest generation of young Gen Z, who are scared of sexual encounters or building relationships with people because of technology and just staying at home more, all those types of trends, and that they are driving this sex recession. And you can see some very good evidence of much lower or later sexual activity among each successive generation. So it was only around one in 10 Gen Xers who got to their early 20s without having had sexual activity in the last 12 months. And then you've got about 20% of millennials who had the same type of behavior. And now it's up to 30 odd percent of Gen Z who, when they were just coming into the adult population, had the same sort of thing. So you've got this cascade of later sexual activity. And the interesting, the subtlety is that for millennials, they've sort of caught up with Gen X in terms of their level of sexual activity, regularity, and number of partners, those types of things. They just started later. And that theme of delayed adulthood is a really key one in for millennials in particular, because they were staying in education longer than previous generations. They were staying at home longer, married later, and had children later. All those types of things, that delayed adulthood theme is a really key one for them and explains a lot of the change that we see among them. That actually is not a real change for good among millennials. It's just doing things later. The interesting question is what happens with Gen Z, because the gap between them and what we understood as regular young people's behavior on sex for Gen X is very different. And seeing a way in which they will close that gap and get back to um, the types of behaviors that we had with Gen X is very difficult to see them being able to close that gap, particularly now we've had the pandemic and all the social distancing that that's involved. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. You talked about the big events that shape generations and shape particularly young people when they experience them, perhaps rather than older ones. Mm. What effect do you think COVID is going to have on Generation Z? Are we already beginning to see some evidence of that? Or is it too early to say at the moment? It is early to say. I mean, we, we definitely are seeing some impact of that. And, and one of the themes of the pandemic is that for the most part, what it does is accelerate and accentuate existing trends rather than create entirely new ones. It does some of that. But the big theme is it just pushes us further and faster along paths we were already on. You can certainly see, and there's lots of data on this, about mental health disorders increasing among the youngest age groups um, that were coming through. And this is a real effect that you see in the data. When you start to look at the longer term impacts on loss of education, then again, there's some, you know, quite scary 
analysis about how that will impact on young people who've been most affected by that. But again, one of the key themes of that has been that it will accentuate inequalities in education, that the better resourced children through either private schools or through their parent capabilities have been better able to cope with that or, or, or mitigate those types of terrible circumstances where the less well-resourced have not been. So again, what it's going to do, you would expect, is accentuate that increase in inequality of life chances depending on the existing resources of your family. So one of, one of the stories of the last decade and going forward will be the increasing importance of intergenerational transfer of inequality. And the pandemic is very likely to accentuate that. And then you get lots of terrible myths about what the pandemic's effect is going to be. There was even talk, including from the health minister, of how we're going to get a baby boom nine months from the start of the first lockdown, which is based on this common misperception that when we're stuck at home, we end up doing things to take our minds off it and it ends up in babies. But it's actually the opposite, where the stress and anxiety tend to reduce births nine months later. So all there's going to be ripples from this in all sorts of different ways. Some will be quite quick and some will take a long time to feed through. But there is certainly the case that being socialised, as in in that crucial children, teenage, early adult years, it does shape you more in many ways, and economically as well, in terms of the scarring effects of experiencing those types of things early on in your career. You point out how boomers have accumulated wealth in the US and UK in particular, much more than previous generations did. But you also say that stoking intergenerational resentment and directly transferring money from the elderly to the young, which it would be possible to do through public policy, that isn't going to help. What is going to help to overcome you know, this potential fissure between older and younger generations? Yeah, it's, a, it's a really tricky question of what do we do about this? Because it's certainly the case, incredible increase in personal wealth. And the problem in some ways with just basing the approach to redistribution on age as opposed to wealth itself is that because of that variety of different circumstances in uh, different age groups, but also relates to that point of it's not really what anyone asks for. When you talk to the, the public about we've got this problem with having a better future for our kids and for young people right now, which people do agree with, is we've had a terrible collapse in confidence that the future is going to be better for young people. So people get that. But when you ask them what they want to do about it, hardly anyone picks out redistributing from old to young. And that includes things like current debates about triple lock. Even in the current circumstances, losing the triple lock is still not popular, not just with older people, but with younger people too. It's a really difficult one. And it partly relates to that point about our connections across the generations are really strong, our love for our parents and grandparents, and the fact that we want to see them supported so that, that we don't have to take on that support. Plus the idea that contribution, sense of contribution to the system is really important to us in judging other people's, whether people deserve to be helped. And older people have contributed the most from being around longer. And then this point about it's our best indicator of how we're going to be treated ourselves. Um, uh, John Hills, like great John Hills, talked about the welfare system as a lifetime redistribution system. And that's kind of how people see it in 
many ways. It is that point of getting help when you need it. So there's this these problems of direct intervention and redistribution between old and young have never been that popular with people because of all these this mess, this mix of reasons. And and really our focus should be on economic inequality generally, regardless of age and having more sense of the wealthy, the ones who have gained, contributing more rather than simple redistributions across age groups. The main thing that we should be doing instead to avoid that sense of disconnection between young and old is increasing the contact between them. What I argue in the book is it's much less conflict is the problem than separation because we have had this incredible separation of where we live physically even in 1991 not that long ago there wasn't any real age gradient towards the proportion of old and young that were living in towns and villages versus cities and now there's a huge gradient where we have separated out into different sorts of areas and it's the same sort of pattern in the US where It's the most age segregated that they have been as well. And on top of that, we've got very separate digital lives where we may have more people, older people online now, but they're in very different places and using the internet for very different sorts of things. So we've got this real separation between the generations, which is a real shame because there's loads and loads of great academic and other work about the huge benefits of intergenerational connection to both sides, to both old and young, that those types of... Uh, human connections between the age ranges is actually hugely beneficial to both sides. That should be our real focus, that combination of focus on inequality. And then if we're looking at age-based measures, it's much more about building support for connections between the generations, not trying to trade one off against the other. Are any other countries making a better attempt at this than we are? Yeah, it's really interesting. It's sort of a lot of countries have the same sort of challenges. The book is international in its reach, as in I've been using data from across lots of different countries. There is a surprising number of echoes across different countries about the same sorts of issues coming up. I guess it's not that surprising because we are much more interconnected now, but generations used to be thought of as very nationally bounded things where you can really make comparisons across. But I think that's increasingly you can make those types of comparisons. So there's certainly a lot of countries with similar sorts of challenges. I think the responses to them are at the minute pretty piecemeal across lots of countries where we have seen a increase in the types of ombudsmen for future generations that are built into government structures or commissioners for future generations, which Wales is, you know, a leading example of that in the world where it has a future generations commissioner as a as an act that is supposed to enshrine a consideration of current and future generations and what impact is going to have on future generations of any of the actions that the government takes now. And I think it's those types of initiatives that we need to be looking to. The real problem is not a simple redistribution between today's old and young. It is that we have a chronic short-termism built into political and media cycles that means that we don't have that focus on the longer term. And and that's really tough to do because, you know, as humans, we tend to focus on the short term, not the longer term, but we can take that longer view. And, and you can see in lots of the data that I was looking at that people do want to take that longer view, but are pushed into these shorter term things. So I think actually institutionalizing some part of government or some element of our uh, political process that's supposed to look at the longer term is going to be one of the themes, the coming themes, I think. And you can see it, it's slowly happening in the 
the initiatives right now are underpowered and need to be developed further. But you can see it happening, and it comes in in the context of climate change. But it's not just about climate change; it is about that sense of growing inequality, or whether the system is working for people, and trying to rebuild that sense of faith in a better future. Yeah, I found myself wondering how Generation X would be perceived as we become old, and it was a slightly terrifying, fascinating thought. Uh, I don't think people will think about us at all, Ross. I think that's part of <laughs> oh, the problem. We're just going to drift away. Are we just doomed to <laughs> yeah. obscurity? Yes. <laughs> like I say, though, we did a, we got the cool name and some cool bands and <laughs> films. That was basically that was our contribution. <laughs> we just talk about the others. Yes. Bobby Duffy, thanks for talking to me. Thanks, Ross. That was great. Generations Does When You're Born Shape Who You Are is published on 2nd of September by Atlantic Books. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.